0: The Going Viral podcast from HealthEd shares the latest information on COVID-19 from authoritative voices and leading experts. You can find all episodes at healthed.com.au or if you're a registered health professional, you can listen on the HealthEd app as well as access many educational resources to support your professional development and practice.
1: Hello and welcome to HealthEd's Going Viral. I am David Lynn. It is Monday, the 24th of January. This is a very important COVID update for all GPs. In this podcast, Professor Rainer McIntyre provides an objective assessment of where we are, how we got here, and the public health challenges that lie ahead. Professor McIntyre, tell us about yourself.
0: Um, Hi, I'm Raina McIntyre, and I'm a public health physician and academic. Uh, I work at the Kirby Institute at the University of New South Wales.
1: Raina, in New South Wales, we've gone from being more or less successful in our COVID management efforts to having some of the highest daily rates in the world. Why do you think this is?
0: Well, it's a combination of factors. So, you know, the the Delta epidemic, which we had in the middle of last year, was brought under control with standard public health measures and case numbers were coming down. And then we had the Omicron variant emerge in November. And the New South Wales government decided to not take that into consideration and to proceed with the New South Wales roadmap, um, regardless, unchanged, which meant essentially, you know, stopping most restrictions on December the 15th. And predictably, you know, that led to a large rise in cases um, in a very short time. And the Omicron variable is much more transmissible than the Delta. So once we started having high case numbers, you know, combined with the Christmas, New Year season, Um, It was just inevitable there was going to be, you know, huge amounts of transmission.
1: Now, given the extraordinary levels of infection in the community right now, can you paint a picture of what the shape of the public health challenge could look like over the next months?
0: Well, I mean, it depends on what choices are made by governments, um, both federal and state. And, you know, we've seen WA make a choice Mm -hmm. to not not be like the East Coast Mm -hmm. and um, to keep the disease out. I suspect the only thing that will create a change in public health strategy from the government's perspective is if the health system collapses to a point where they're forced to to do something otherwise i think they've pretty clearly signaled they're not going to do anything and we've got schools about to open you know in in a week's time or so and i would expect to see a further surge in cases after that Um, so i think we're you know we're still in for a difficult period in the coming months
1: the problem, Reno, is that testing, of course, is becoming difficult to access, particularly PCRs. And f- for quite a while, the rapid antigen tests were hard to come by. So, what do you really think is our case numbers? The real, uh, can you make a guesstimate? And what are the implications of this for individuals, uh, for the community, and our health system?
0: Yeah, it's uh, it's just a shame that the government didn't plan for the predicted massive increase in case numbers by strengthening the testing system. The mm-hmm. WHO has actually called on governments around the world to strengthen testing mm-hmm. and tracing. You know, those are the two pillars of epidemic control to stop it from growing exponentially, rising, and you have to identify all the new cases so they don't go on to infect others, and you have to identify their contacts and make them quarantine so they, they don't become the next... Trench of cases and infect others. And both those things have essentially collapsed. We really have no idea what the true case numbers are, but I think anecdotally, all of us know, just from the sheer number of people we personally know who mm-hmm. are infected, that it's a lot more than what the official numbers are. We also know that this, you know, testing is not accessible. Um, the, the problem, when the testing systems collapsed in December, they made a decision to restrict PCR testing even further. <laughs> so, you know, it's it's very narrow as in who's eligible for a PCR test. And I think, frankly, most people have just given up. They won't even bother going to a testing centre because they've heard all the stories of people being turned away. And I've heard anecdotally that the testing centres are pretty empty now. You know, nobody's going there because that's the message we've been given. Don't go there. Mm, um, yeah. And then... As for the rats, um, you know they're still not not uh, accessible. There's still a shortage. The private providers, like pharmacies, etc., who ordered huge quantities in general practice, haven't been able to get them. There's been a delay because we don't know exactly what's happened. You know, they, they, But the, we think that, you know, the the supplies of vaccine maybe. Have been diverted to the government tender we don't know samantha maiden wrote a nice article about it that's worth looking at today um which, mm-hmm. which outlines what may or may not have happened behind the scenes but essentially anybody who's ordered rats with you know including practices um is getting messages from the providers saying sorry but um there's been a delay we can't fulfill your order just yet just hang on a bit longer so There's no testing capacity, you know, whilst other countries are strengthening testing and tracing, Australia has done the opposite. We've abandoned the very strong testing tracing system we had last year. Um, And the tracing is, you know, people are just told to inform their own contacts. This is a public health announcement on behalf of the Immunisation Coalition.
2: Well, hello. My name is uh, Professor Robert Boy. I'm an infectious diseases specialist and epidemiologist. And I especially like to talk about uh, vaccination and the prevention of vaccine preventable diseases. There's a very real risk that a whole bunch of viruses will be imported, but influenza is the most concerning. Suddenly, when we shut the borders in March 2020, flu went away. And we haven't had a flu season now for two years. And that is really, really important because there's no natural immunity out there uh, nearly as much as there was. And also the influenza vaccination rate in 2021 was really quite low. People were so busy getting themselves COVID vaccinated, they didn't get their flu jam. So the combination of two really quiet flu seasons, very quiet in Australia, and a poor level of vaccination in 2021 against influenza Mm -hmm. means that there's a great many people who are much more susceptible to influenza than usual. And I would predict that we'll get at least a moderate season and probably a big flu season. 2017 and 2019 were both big influenza seasons in Australia. We've now had two quiet ones. I would predict fairly strongly that we're due for trouble in 2020. 22, and it's probably going to start early in 2022 as well. So what we do have already is a lot of vaccines from last year against influenza in people's fridges. Now, because flu hasn't been transmitting, it also hasn't been mutating. When flu is in anyone's body, it can change its spots within a couple of days. It's an RNA virus that mutates very easily. COVID takes more like two weeks in a chain of transmission to get a meaningful mutation flu takes more like two days. So because flu has not been transmitting, it won't have mutated terribly much. And so the vaccine that we've had all year and in our fridges still, if we suddenly got a surge in December, January, people who are at risk, especially 65 and above chronic medical conditions, they may well benefit from a flu jab a booster, especially if they didn't have one last year, if they forgot. So those flu jams in your fridge might actually turn out to be useful in uh, December, January, if we suddenly get the surge that I'm worried we might have of influenza. And then we'll have new flu jams available from March. And they, of course, have been updated and uh, they would be appropriate to use from March.
1: Right. I I must say, I do not envy your position in a pandemic like this to see where we are. I I probably wouldn't ask for a personal comment from you, but I could, in myself, uh, have fairly strong feelings. But a question, what is the rationale for reducing testing during this Omicron wave in the first place?
0: Well, the government was left in this situation where they made a policy decision to remove all mitigations and thereby allow very widespread transmission. They knew from the modeling that
3: mm-hmm. even
0: the Doherty um, Institute did for them last year, uh, that that modeling predicted as much as 200,000 cases a day. So mm. they knew we were going to face unprecedented case numbers. They should have planned ahead and strengthened the testing system. They should have ordered the rats last year. They should have. You know, uh, they should have anticipated it. They had all the information they needed to, but they didn't. They just thought life would maybe life would magically go back to normal if they just, you know, um, lifted all the mitigations. But so there was no planning for the for the increase, massive increase in cases that was absolutely expected. You know, that wasn't a surprise. It wasn't, you know, some mysterious thing that happened against all. Uh, knowledge, you know, they had knowledge of it and uh, they didn't plan. So I think when they were faced with that situation where um, the testing system was collapsing, you know, we heard in country towns of people standing for eight hours and passing out from heat stroke, elderly Mm -hmm. people sitting in queues, unable to, you know, not even having the strength to stand for that long. When that happened, they decided the best solution rather than strengthening the testing Mm
3: -hmm. was to restrict it
0: right? All of a sudden, it's really difficult to get a PCR test. And they told everyone to take personal responsibility and get a rat. But there were no rats to be had. You know, everyone was scrambling around. It was kind of like the Hunger Games of of rats, you know, (laughs) and nobody could get the rats. So it was really um, a very, very unfortunate situation. Uh, It was just sheer lack of planning. That was what happened.
1: Given the huge numbers Uh, out in the community now, Raina, is tracing still useful and is it still practically feasible?
0: Yes, it is. You know, I think one thing that to me, you know, um, watching, looking at different countries and how they've approached it, some countries are extremely ambitious in how they've approached it. And, and I think Australia falls amongst the least ambitious countries, you know, there mm-hmm. was no ambition to get people vaccinated early, there was no ambition to speed up the third dose booster, you know, what's the point of everyone having their third dose booster after the Omicron wave has peaked and gone?
3: Mm-hmm. What's
0: the point? You know, you, you, from an epidemic control perspective, you have to get people vaccinated before um, the bulk of the diseases is upon us um, because the two doses does not protect against omicron you absolutely need that third dose. It's the same with kids going back to school you space it out by eight weeks and send them back to school at the peak of the pandemic. you know this is a virus that ha- persists in the brain after the acute infection. it persists in the heart. Are we going to see you know epidemics of neurocognitive disease and and Mm -hmm. cardiac disease in in decades to come in young people. Mm -hmm. We don't know but we do know that the virus has effects that uh, affect almost every body organ and that the virus persists in the body after the acute infection you know um, there's an NIH study that just came out um, a little of maybe a week or two ago showing um, that it persisted in the brain, the heart, the kidneys almost every organ except the reproductive organs I think right. um, they could find virus in the body so you know what does that do to people what are the long-term consequences going to be we've got seen a study out of the US that showed more than t- twice the risk of diabetes in ch- um, insulin dependent type 1 diabetes in children following COVID right mm-hmm. we're going if we just expose kids to this and and willfully get them infected, we will absolutely see an epidemic of diabetes. You know, we're, we're condemning these children to a risk of, of a serious lifelong disease like diabetes. You know, the, the knowledge is all there. We can all deny it and, you know, spin all kinds of narratives to minimise it, but the knowledge is there. Those who choose to find that knowledge know, you know, that this is still a dangerous
1: virus. You're painting an incredibly powerful picture for for us. And yet there, there are so many conversations out there, you know, Omicron is a very mild disease. Look, why don't we just get it now? Because it's mild and we'll have enduring protection. What do you, how do you respond to these sorts of conversations?
0: So globally, we've had four waves of the pandemic. And in every wave, people have said the same thing oh, you know, get in, everyone getting infected will create herd immunity and it'll be over. Well, it's not true, is it?
3: <laughs> no. You know,
0: countries that have had multiple waves are still having waves. Yep. You know? And we know, absolutely, we have the data now to show that getting Omicron does not protect you, right? So it's just, you know, the, the problem with this pandemic is we've seen an anti-science agenda becoming mainstream. Mm-hmm. We now see doctors and health officials propagating stuff that is straight out of the anti-vaxxer playbook. You know, telling people it is necessary to get infected, and then then you know, saying oh oh oh, and, and backtracking when people start having COVID parties. You know, mm-hmm. COVID party. You know, for some, I've worked in vaccines for twenty five years, and. Um, dealing with the anti-vax lobby for that long and, you know, having measles parties, chickenpox parties. That is core to the anti-vaccine uh, movement. Mm-hmm. And here we have public health officials, doctors, health officials propagating anti-vax, anti-science disinformation, which, is, um, which just tells you how mainstreamed um, the anti-science agenda has become. It's really quite terrifying. It's true that, that Omicron is not as severe as Delta. There's now studies from at least four different countries. It's not as severe as Delta. But, it, you know, but Delta was twice as severe as Alpha, mm-hmm. right?
3: Mm-hmm.
0: So um, Omicron is probably similar to the original Wuhan strain. Wow. In fact, there's some other research that suggests, you know, in terms of the um, risk of hospitalisation, death, etc., and unvaccinated people, it's similar to the original virus. So this is still a very serious virus. It's not like influenza. Mm -hmm. That's, again, anti-science disinformation with these (laughs) people. Even, you know, health officials telling us it's like influenza. It is not like influenza. I have worked in influenza research for 30 years. I have followed every severe influenza season in Australia since the, the, the first severe season of flu that I was following in in Australia was 2003. Mm -hmm. That's as long as I've been working in the influenza field. And I can tell you, you don't have, you know, 20, 30, 40, 50 people dying every day when there's an influenza season. You do not have ambulances ramped to such an extent that people having a myocardial infarction cannot get an ambulance for five hours. Mm -hmm. You do not see tents put up in the car park to treat patients You do not see nearly 3,000 people a day in hospital. You do not see, you know, 200-plus people in ICU on a given day. You do not, Uh, you know, and all these people who say it's like influenza, they don't have the knowledge or the experience. They're just, you know, making
1: it up. This is a difficult question. You may choose not to answer it. But if I was a lay person, I, I probably wouldn't know how to tell spin from fact now.
0: Yeah, and the problem is it's coming from politicians, it's coming from doctors, it's coming from public health officials, even in the media commentary, you'll notice there's a polarization, there's, the, there's the, um, the experts who'll come out and just repeat whatever the, you know, all the disinformation, and then there's others who are, you know, just trying to be, you know, more objective and scientific who generally, you know, pay a pretty high price for that, you know, we get attacked a lot and uh, kind of shouted down. But it's very difficult, as I said, because disinformation has become mainstreamed, And it's not just an Australian phenomenon, it's a global phenomenon, which we saw particularly in the US in the first year of the pandemic, where we had even a political leader who was, um, you know, um, promoting bleach, drinking bleach and taking hydroxychloroquine and you know, all kinds of anti unscientific nonsense. So we, we saw it, you know, happening globally. And it's, it's really I think social media has really amplified some of that disinformation. So it's become quite mainstream. And we have people in positions of authority and power driving the health agenda who are not particularly knowledgeable sometimes <laughs> who just kind of repeat all this stuff. And uh, it's very difficult if it's confusing for experts who are out there talking complete nonsense it must be you know so much more confusing for the lay public.
1: Even as I speak to various experts for these sorts of interviews it's fairly clear to me that some of them are just repeating I would call it party line if you like and it's very difficult for me to get a sense of what really is happening out there. So I have a question for you. Now, people have been told to exercise personal responsibility. Now, really, what does that mean in the scope of public health strategy? Has it ever worked?
0: Um, Well, it works for rich people. Yeah, you can buy your own home oxygen, you can have an oximeter, you can you know, um, get your rats in ways that other people don't have access to. You can set up a hospital in your own home yep. if you've got the means. You know, it's fine for rich people, yep. but for the ordinary person out there living in a crowded apartment in, um, you know, with um, multi-generational family in one small apartment, there's not that many options. You don't have a holiday house that you can get away to. You can't, nobody's even told you just open your window, you know you're there scrubbing your hands and washing your hands and thinking that's going to protect you, it's, it, it doesn't work for, for um, you know, uh, it's very inequitable um, and it's essentially another way of saying, you know, the government's not going to do anything for you anymore. You look after yourself. It's everyone for themselves, survival yep. of the fittest, the strong shall inherit the earth.
1: But in your what you're really saying and what's really obvious to me is that it's actually exacerbated this whole question of, inequity, uh, where we see the people in most need suffer the most. And as you rightly said, I don't see hands reaching out to help them.
0: No, no, it's very much, you know, you're on your own. And I yeah. think you have to look at the UK as probably the most extreme example of that uh, in what's going on, the US not far behind, which is surprising, You you know, historically, it's been the other way around. And Australia, clearly, you know, the political leadership is very much looking to the UK model.
1: Just a quick question on a point you made earlier that the Omicron, uh, getting the Omicron does not protect you against reinfection. Do you have any idea what sorts of figures for reinfection there is?
0: So, this is more from serological and immunological data. Right. Um, You know, the vaccine response, like a booster, uh, will give you much better protection, then, con- the, you know, the levels of antibodies are much lower for just convalescent serum. So, wow, you know, if you've had infection and you've been vaccinated, also, you get a good response. But if you haven't been vaccinated, you you know, you're very likely to get infected again.
1: Okay, which is completely not what everybody's thinking, is it? <laughs> However, there has been a small study it has been quoted by several people about the fourth Pfizer jet been given in Israel um, that did kind of boost the antibodies, but it was said to be ineffective against infection by the Omicron variant. I, I, I just don't know. But in my mind, that raises so many questions like how many shots should we go before you get diminishing returns? And what what really lies ahead for countries who keep investing in more and more vaccines, and what does it mean for countries that have actually very low rates of vaccination? So there's a
0: lot of issues in there. I'll just tackle the first one first, which is about the fourth dose. Yeah. Um, Israel went ahead because there was data that the after the third dose the, there's waning to the same degree seen after the second dose. Yeah. So they went with um, you know targeted program for mm-hmm. the fourth dose. And the so called study is not even a preprint. There's nothing out there that's peer reviewed. Right. It's not even a preprint. It's just a media report okay. from a very small study, from what I understand, with maybe just a few hundred people. I can't remember, but it's not large numbers. Mm-hmm. So I think the jury's still out on that. And I don't think there's enough information. It's only a media report in the. Okay. of Israel, I think. So I think we really have to wait and see. But the the bottom line is, you know, the vaccines that we have at the moment were developed against the Wuhan strain, which pretty much died out in March 2020. So what we're dealing with now is, you know, phylogenetically very far removed from the original Mm -hmm. strain. So what we need is an Omicron-targeted booster, which both Pfizer and Moderna are making They've stated they'll have them ready by March. Mm -hmm. That probably means the US will get them in March. I don't know when we will get them. But that will change the the balance again, right? If we're Mm going to have a fourth dose, it really should be matched to the predominant variant of concern. Yes.
3: Um,
0: And, of course, something else may come after Omicron, but because the mutations are so extensive in in the spike protein of Omicron, um, I think you know, getting an Omicron booster can't hurt compared to just getting a fourth dose of the Wuhan strain vaccine, right? So I think that's where we need to be planning for. I don't know if any such planning is happening and I don't know if we're going to be at the back of the queue again, as we have Mm -hmm. with everything else and whether, you know, policy decisions are going to just drag on and on and on while more and more people get infected and get into hospital and
3: die.
0: I don't know. But I'm I'm absolutely confident we will have vaccines that are matched to the variants. We'll also have better vaccines. We'll have good drugs like the Paxlovid from Pfizer is looks um, pretty phenomenal, really. But I think it's going to have the same problem as oseltamivir with influenza, right? Because you've got to give it very early in the infection. And with influenza, we know that if people don't go to the GP early in the symptoms. And get tested, and then get the oseltamivir. It's not as if you've got to get it within 48 hours. Looks like it's pretty similar for Paxlovid. It's got to be given early, so it's all tied in with testing. So if we've had our testing systems collapsed and we're not investing in testing, we Mm -hmm. can't maximize the benefits of drugs like Paxlovid. You know, you can't on the one hand say, oh, you know, we'll have drugs, everything will be all right, and yeah. it won't be serious because we'll have drugs. Well, you know, to give those drugs effectively, you need a testing system where every GP can test or, you know, arrange for someone to get tested as soon as they get symptoms to know whether they they can get the drug.
1: So it's a bit like putting the cart before the horse again.
0: Yeah. Yeah, we've got to plan ahead to maximise. These things have promise, you know, but we, to maximise the potential of these drugs, we have to plan ahead and, um, you know, have the infrastructure in place so that maximum number of people can benefit from those Mm. drugs. This is a public health announcement on behalf of the Immunisation Coalition.
1: Pertussis vaccination is key for adults, We should all get a pertussis vaccination every 10 years. Anyone who will be in contact with an infant under six months old, healthcare workers, childcare workers, and travelers should get vaccinated every 10 years. Pertussis can cause severe complications in people with existing conditions, such as cardiac disease, asthma, COPD, diabetes, and obesity. Protect against pertussis. Rena, what's the, um, if you like, the data on this new drug in preventing hospitalizations?
0: Yeah, very good. It looks highly effective. Um, The Merck's Molnupiravir looks reasonably good as well, but not uh, as good. I haven't seen it. There's no head-to-head comparisons, but the Paxlovid looks more efficacious than the Molnupiravir, but the Molnupiravir also looks reasonably good. The Remdesivir still works as well, but, uh, you know, Um, not as well as these other two
1: drugs. Mm -hmm. Recently, we've seen the increasing shortening of the um, time interval between shots in Australia. Do do you see what are are the consequences of these sorts of decisions that, to me, seem to be made somewhat on the run?
0: Well, you know, you've got to consider several things. You've got to consider the data on the waning, the data on vaccine escape, and, you know, we, we knew in December, you know, we knew in November that there's substantial waning after two doses um, and even the protection against Delta really waned off after two doses by, you know, three, three to four months mm-hmm. and definitely by six months we knew that Omicron had substantial vaccine escape, but that a third dose improves the protection against hospitalisation, et cetera. Mm -hmm. And then you've got to think about what's the incidence of disease. You know, if we say you've got to wait six months for your booster, which is, you know, for someone who got vaccinated in um, December, it's, you know, in the middle of this year, by which time the Omicron wave would have come and gone and they would have got infected. Right. So you've got to think yep. about that. You want to protect the maximum number of people at the peak of the epidemic,
3: mm-hmm. which
0: so for which there's very strong logic for reducing shortening the interval as an epidemic control measure yep. so that people are facing this wave with the maximum protection they could have. In regards to whether we're going to keep requiring more and more boosters, well, you know. Probably we do. Um, It might end up just being an annual vaccine. But then again, we've also got, uh, you know, the Walter Reed Institute, the Army Institute in the US has developed what looks like quite a promising um, pan-coronavirus vaccine that would be variant-proof, and I think Mm -hmm. we'll see more and more uh, development of vaccines like that, which is what we need, actually. We need a vaccine that's variant-proof, and I, I have every confidence we're going to see more than one option on the table Um, not so long away so there's every reason to try to protect people and Mm. hold out for these things they're not that far away the omicron match booster is not that far you know it should be available in the first half of the year and when you think about the potential long-term consequences of the infection you know there's so much data now on cardiac neurological on other systems besides the lungs you know yes people can be left with you know permanent impairment of their respiratory function but also, you know, there's been numerous studies now showing substantial neurocognitive deficit deficits in um, a, a significant number of people, you know, maybe about 30 percent of people. There was one study in the UK, I think, that showed a seven point drop in IQ in survivors. Another study that showed on CT scan, shrinkage of the brain, atrophy of the brain. Then there's the postmortem study from um, the NIH in the US, which showed virus persisting in the brain long after the acute infection. What oh. does that virus do there? You know, we know with measles, it can cause SSPE 10 years after the infection. We don't know. Anyone who's there, you know, strutting around confidently saying it's fine, it's fine. it's just, They're just lying. We don't know. Mm. We know from the pathology, the virus stays in the body in a, a substantial number of people long after the acute infection. We don't know. We cannot know until a decade down the track what the impact's going to be. But, but my guess is, it's going to have a substantial chronic disease burden you know there's going to be a huge burden of chronic disease you know respiratory cardiac neurocognitive and other immunological probably um, of this virus.
1: I'm so glad I am hearing this from me because a lot of people do not talk about the possibility of this long-term burden of disease and if we are aware that things can happen we should as you rightly say, start making plans for it even now.
0: Well, you know, we I think, uh, you know, it's just a real. children are what I worry about children mm, because, mm. This, you know, their bodies are exposed to the virus in the same, you know, they're being exposed to the virus on a scale at which they've not been exposed so far and the majority of them are not going to be fully vaccinated. Why yeah. did we delay on child vaccination for so mm. long? when other countries had gone ahead with it. You know, it's another... On every single policy issue, we've delayed, you know, and the, the cost is being borne by our kids. Instead of going back to school fully vaccinated, they're going back to school unvaccinated or partially vaccinated. Uh,
1: look, a tempting question would be, why is it on every single of one <coughs> of those issues you mentioned, why is it that we have always on the back foot or uh, had taken a relatively relaxed position till the last moment? And that's a question you probably can't answer, but it's...
0: Well, I think the answer is there if you go back and look at press conferences from early 2021. You know, it's not a race. We'll just wait and watch. We'll wait and see what happens in other countries. Those words have been repeated over and over again on at every step of the way.
1: We keep hearing now, um, Raina, that the peak is pretty much here and it's going soon be... Soon be uh, over to Pink. What does that mean?
0: I, uh, there are two issues there. One is we don't know, you know, we don't know because the testing system's collapsed. Mm-hmm. Most people who need a test cannot get one. Everyone understands that you can't get a test, so nobody's even going to the testing centres that are open still, right? Mm-hmm. But most people have it in their mind, there's no point trying to get tested. I can't buy a rat. I've been told I'm not eligible for a PCR. There's nothing I can do. That's what's in most people's minds. So people aren't getting tested because there's no options. The testing system's not functioning as it should. So we don't have an accurate gauge of what the true case numbers are. The only way we can more confidently say the peak has passed is when we see a sustained decline in the hospitalizations. Mm -hmm. bearing in mind that the hospitalizations will lag cases by one to two weeks. So when we've seen, you know, a good two weeks of continued sustained decline in hospital numbers, we can say, yeah, it looks like it's passed, but we really can't rely on case numbers. The second thing to say is we're having schools opening, you know, in a week's time or so, depending on what state you're in. Mm
3: -hmm. There's
0: going to be another surge after that. There is going to be. You know, these viruses behave in a predictable way Mm -hmm. and it's going to surge. If there is a decline right now, a real decline, There'll probably be another uptick after schools open. You know, I think if if we've passed two weeks after the opening of schools and numbers are still going down, okay, all good. I was wrong, but um, that's the kind of time you're looking towards the middle of February. I think to really get a handle on um, what effect the opening of schools has had.
1: The other thing we often hear is that the Omicron variant is the end of the is the start at the beginning of the end of the pandemic.
0: Uh, I think we heard that with every variant, didn't we? <laughs> you know, <laughs> but people are just having magical thinking. You know, people are sick of it. We're all sick of it. You know, we all just yeah. want yeah. this to end, and we want yeah. it. so hopium, You know, it's hopium. People are just, uh, and people are hungry for that kind of talk. So mm-hmm. there's an audience for it to set to, you know, put out all this um, kind of hope. But the virus has thrown us, you know, substantial mutations pretty much every six months. We had um, the the Wuhan strain go January, February, March 2020, kind of died out then. And then we had the D614G, which went from March, April to September Mm -hmm.
3: 2020.
0: And then we had alpha from about September 2020 till about April, May, June 2021. Then we had delta. And now we've got Omicron. So where's the evidence that it's over? This has been throwing up mutations at an unprecedented rate. At the beginning of the pandemic, those who understand coronaviruses understood that it is not a virus that mutates as fast as flu.
3: Mm-hmm.
0: It's a quite a stable virus. But what's actually happened is not what was expected by the virologist. It's mutated actually at a much faster rate than influenza. Okay. That's so, interesting to hear. So if we get a mutation that's vaccine resistant or, you know, has some other characteristics, we really don't know. It's it's uncertain. And I guess, you know, that again brings back that point that we need a variant-proof pan-coronavirus mm-hmm. vaccine. Mm-hmm. And I think that's where we'll see a lot of effort focused in research and development. There will also be, um, you know, variant vaccines um, that are, you know, either uh, either have two antigens in them or more than two antigens. So we might see vaccines um, come out which have Omicron and Delta in them, for example.
1: Now, one of the clear reasons why we had opened up was really to benefit the um, business sector. From what I can see, it doesn't look like it's even achieved that.
0: Um, no, the economy has tanked and I think it's done worse than it did during the lockdowns. Uh, you know, because first of all, um, you know, New Year's Eve is like the most profitable time for yeah. um, restaurants and hospitality, entertainment, et cetera. And there were just mass cancellations, you know, mm. people mm. are not stupid. You can tell them stupid things and expect them and and think they might do whatever you tell them to do. But people are not stupid, you know. They live with other people that they don't want to get, that they don't want to infect. And people stayed home. They didn't want to go out and take that risk. And then we've seen retail kind of tank as well, you know, big department stores and shopping centers, et cetera. People don't want to go again because they're not stupid. (laughs) They don't, that they have a certain risk tolerance and they don't think it's a great idea to go out there when they haven't had a chance to get their booster. you know, we don't know if ventilation's been fixed or addressed anywhere, and there's you can't even get a test. And in the, and the other aspect of the economy is people. You know, the economy is people. Yeah. It's people who work in the different systems that generate revenue for the economy, mm-hmm. and we've seen the supply chains collapse because of mass workplace absenteeism. I mean, anyone who actually understands pandemics knows that this happens. You know, if enough people get sick. Your, your critical infrastructure can be affected. So in normal times, workplace absenteeism is about 1% to 5%. Yep. So at any one time, 1% to 5% of your workers might be absent or sick. But we've heard of absenteeism rates of 20 30 to 50%, right? Woolworths has said that 20 to 30% of their employees working in the, in the warehouses and the factories, et cetera, have been off sick. And so, that you know, we've seen the Prime Minister ask that children be allowed to drive forklift trucks so that Woolworths can get their product off the shelves and into the trucks, which is, you know, I won't even go there, but we we really don't want to go back to child labour, do we? Um, (laughs) So that's been the other predictable impact is that, you know, haven't been able to get chicken on the supermarket shelves. Farmers can't get people to pick their produce. Farmers haven't been able to ship their produce. So they've been having to dump enormous quantities of rotting fruit and vegetables. And we don't know how long that impact will go on. Um, It may get worse after the opening of schools. We don't know uh, if there's another surge. So there was really no, you have to just wonder, you know,
1: well, well Thinking yeah. of that, uh, the one strategy that has been put forward apart from children driving forklifts is the constant redefinition of close contacts and when you should be isolating or how or, or not and when you should go back to work. And I find that this sorts of constant redefinition doesn't really change the reality, but I, I, I'm not sure from a public health perspective what it's actually doing.
0: Well, it's a Band-Aid solution, right? Let's take the average general practice. If there's someone who's with infection in there and everyone's a close contact, the receptionist, the GPs, et cetera, the nurses, and you tell everyone to keep working, well, you might have a couple of days of extra capacity, but you're going to be much worse off because the infection's just going to spread unfettered. So it's a Band-Aid solution that's actually going to make transmission worse And it's not addressing the the root problem, which is lack of testing, lack of infrastructure, lack of contact tracing. And the contact tracing can be done at scale. It needs digital methods, you know, whether it's the QR codes or there's a lot of other digital methods that can be used. And we've already invested a lot in Mm -hmm. um, the QR code infrastructure. So it was just a bizarre decision to drop all of that on December the 15th. Then they brought it back when they saw the cases start to surge and, it was such a chaotic response. But, um, you know, digital tracing at least is a way that people can be notified. You know, if you go into a shop or into a practice, you want someone to tell you if you were in contact, you know, with, with, with the virus. And that, that I think that would have helped consumer confidence too. You know, people might go to Kmart if they know that they'll get a notification if they've yes. been in contact. But it's like, yeah, <laughs> what can I say? Yes.
1: And and just just as a um, you know, n equals one story, uh, with the Delta wave, I don't think I ever had one notification. But I gotta tell you, uh, with this American wave, I've got about eight.
0: Right. Well, that's um, good.
1: You're going, okay, <laughs> it's all around me. You know, you go and get yeah. a carton yeah. of milk or eggs and it's out there. Well, you're um, getting the
0: notifications and that's good, you know.
1: Yeah. the system is working there so here's a difficult one now health professionals especially doctors have been really deprived of important uh, professional education uh, that usually happens in conferences in those face-to-face meetings do you think that these sorts of face-to-face events is likely to happen um, after at any time
0: Look, I think there's no logistical barrier to it happening in that I think depending on where you are, there's no restrictions on gatherings. Um, you, for example, universities set to open, universities are set to open in the middle of February, and students have been told they're going back to face-to-face classes. So there's no logistical barrier, but it's a risk mm. when there's a lot of COVID around. Maybe, maybe there can be solutions, you know, hybrid solutions where I don't know, you have have meetings in resorts where some of the events can happen outdoors. And, you know, I'm sure, you know, human beings are really resilient, we can adapt to things, we can mm-hmm. come up with solutions. I'm sure there are solutions that can work around some yeah. of the issues.
1: Right. Now, do you have any final messages for our GP listeners?
0: Uh, well, if you haven't had your third dose, get it as soon mm-hmm. as possible. I'm sure most GPs have got it Hang in there. You know, there's there's hope on the horizon, definitely. You know, there's good drugs. There's going to be better vaccines. There's going to be a matched Omicron booster very soon. Um, and it's worth holding out for that. Yeah, I think there's still, whatever the virus throws at us, there's still a lot of hope. So it is it is serious infection still. It has not mutated into the common cold. And we do have to try and prevent it in ourselves and in, in the people we look after. But there's also a reason for hope. And I think um, we just need to, you know, arm ourselves with the knowledge that we need to deal, to manage the risk and mitigate the risk for the time being um, and wait for those solutions. But one of the things is safe indoor air, you know. I mean, I've been, when I went to get my booster, I went into a general practice where uh, I got my booster in a room where the windows were closed, you know, and they were windows that could be opened. And I said to the GP, have you tested the ventilation in here? And she was just clueless. You know, I said, you need to open that window or you're going to get infected. But she just didn't seem to think that was an issue. So um, I think it's really important, safe indoor air in your practice. Um, And a carbon dioxide monitor is a way to measure the ventilation. It's a proxy for how much of other people's breath you're breathing in, Mm -hmm. inhaling. Um, And you can buy them relatively cheaply. You know, they start at about $30 on Amazon. Um, The really good ones, I think the Aronet, Four is a very good one. Um, they started about $300, I think, but they've also seen research that shows the really cheap ones are pretty much as good as the really expensive ones. It's a good way to just test out your practice and see where the, the risk spots are. Is yeah. it in your waiting room? Is it in the corridor? Is it in the toilets? Where yeah. is it? And then you mitigate that risk. You either yeah. open a window and then test again with people in there. Um, to see if it's dropped the CO2 level. Yep. Um, or you can put an air purifier in. You know, they also start at about $300. They can go up to about $1,000. They make a dramatic difference in clearing the virus.
1: Mm-hmm. There, I can't let you go with asking about masks, Ryan. I know looking at your past studies into masks, what would you recommend?
0: Uh, for a GP, you should be wearing an N95. Everyone working in the practice should be wearing an N95. So the U.S., has even recommended N95s for the community because it's absolutely clear that a cloth mask or a surgical mask is not enough against Omicron. It's so contagious. You do need to maximize your respiratory protection.
1: And cloth masks are out, right?
0: Yeah. And you can design a cloth mask that's as good as a surgical mask, but Who's got the time to do that? You know, um, if you're, you know, as a work health and safety issue, you know, I think everyone working in the practice should be using an N95. You can reuse them and extend the use of them. There's quite a bit of literature on that as well. So you don't have to throw them away at the end of the day. There's a lot of data. There's actually guidelines on reuse from the CDC in the US. So you can look those up and, you know, follow their recommendations and you can make one N95 go a long way or you can buy the reusable elastomeric respirators.
1: What respirators?
0: They're called elastomeric respirators. They um, are reusable. So okay. in the long run, it's going to be a lot cheaper.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: And I think we're going to be dealing with this for you know, for a while still. It's definitely worth pandemic-proofing your practice.
1: When you say for a while, measured in years, Raina?
0: Yeah, I think at least a couple of years, maybe longer.
1: I really appreciate it speaking with you, Raina. It's really important to hear the messages you've given us. Uh, It's not easy listening, but it certainly makes a whole lot more sense than what's being repeated out there.
0: Thanks, David, and all the best to everyone out there in in their practices and in primary care.
1: Thank you, Raina, and you keep safe. Thanks for your time.
0: It's a pleasure. Bye. Thank
1: you. Bye-bye.